If you've known me for five minutes, you know that I have an extremely narrow palette of movies that I like. There are really five of them. Jason Bourne, one, two, three, four, five. That's all you need to know. Uh, yeah, thank you. I uh, went home after last night's message and just thought, yeah, I think this would be helpful to prepare me for tomorrow. So yes, I watched number four. Uh, when I fly, that's oftentimes when I get a new movie in um, because it's free. And I'm not a, a huge movie watcher, but, um, and if I have a conversation, I flew last week and sitting next to me, uh, was a mother and her daughter. And, um, I was decided, I don't think I'm going to talk about their sin. That's kind of a little much for a mother and a daughter, but I did ask them, this was my opening question to them as we sat down. I said, do you guys own a tattoo shop? And she, the mom looked at me and it's like, well, why would you ask? I said, well, look at you. I mean, my stars, you guys have a lot. I mean, usually people with tattoo shops have, like have that. And I said, you know, we only have about a three-hour flight, so we got to get busy. And she was looking at me like, what? And I said, I need to understand all of these tattoos. And so um, I didn't watch any movies on that flight because it took us all two hours and 40 minutes. Actually, we were on the tarmac for another hour. So we, we pretty much got them all done, the ones I was supposed to see. And... Um, <laughs> When, when I don't have somebody that is uh, tattooed up, and um, I, I'll watch a movie. And one of the movies I watched a few years ago was a movie called The Vow. It's, it's a movie, as I understand it, read on it, loosely based upon a real-life story of a woman who was in a car accident, and she had amnesia. Here's the twist of this movie. Her parents, whom she was estranged to, she remembered and loved. Her husband, who she loved, she forgot. Can you imagine, think about it for a moment, coming home and not having a clue as to what you like to eat, not recognizing the inside of the house that you decorated, and most horrifically, having no memory of the person you married. Memory the capacity to remember who you are and to know all that is about that is the real, the, the complete basis of any relationship. And in 38 years of pastoring, I think one of the most challenging I've watched in people's lives are people who are married or family systems that are dealing with dementia, Alzheimer's, some form of memory loss. Because often what comes with that is a personality change, um, behavioral changes. And if you don't remember who you are, then you don't know how to act and you don't know who to love. If you have no memory of a marriage, then the idea of sleeping with that person would be frightening. You take that into the house and I'll take this into the house. And the only reason I'm allowing you to stay here is because you showed me a couple of pictures. But to not have any recollection at all, it would be virtually the end of the relationship. When John's writing to a group of people, he is writing to some folks, if you will, as a spiritual medic, to them who have forgotten who they are. 
If you don't know who you are, you don't know how to act and you don't know who to love. And there's a lot of Christians, John suggests, and I think it's probably true today, that you really have forgotten who you are. And because of that, you don't know how to act and you don't know who to love. And John has a question for them. It's much like if you've ever been at a scene of an accident and there's a head trauma and somebody's laying there, they will go up and they're again trying to uh, ascertain whether or not this person is life-threatening injuries. But very soon, I'm not an expert in this, I've just watched it. They will ask the question, do you know who you are? Do you know your name? Then they'll kind of go through, do you know why you're here? Do you know where you're at? Do you know what day it is? All they're doing is just trying to figure out, do we have a brain injury? Do we have a person who knows who they are? Because if you know who you are, you know who to call. You know, you can call your wife, you can call your husband, you can call your kids. But if you have no idea who you are, then you have no idea who to call. And John is asking these dear friends that very question. My friend, do you know who you are? Because if you don't know who you are, you won't know how to act. And you'll have no idea who to love. John begins in that place. If you read from 228 through the end of the next chapter, you're going to see at least five, probably six, that you could easily say are references to John trying to reaffirm to them their identity. Somehow they have forgotten. Somehow they have set it aside. And so as he's writing to them, starts out in chapter 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, verse 1 of chapter 3. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called, what? Children of God. Verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God. I've said it a hundred times. I'll say it a hundred more before I die. When you read the text and you see repetition, you got to zero in at that. Because he's trying to write for a purpose. And the purpose is you forgot who you are. And if you don't know your identity, you don't have a clue how to live. And what he wants to tell them is your identity is not the work of your life. It's the work of God. Your identity, you're a child of God. That's what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. The scripture is so clear when it says, even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. See, the identity piece that John wants you to understand and to embrace is that you didn't pursue God. He pursued you. You didn't chase him down. You didn't dream him up. You didn't wake up one day and go, wow, I think I need to get a little religion in my life. How about if I pursue God and the sacrifice of Christ? And let me put all of that together. You, you didn't think one thought of that. The scripture says in John chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit was convicting you of sin in regard to righteousness, faith, and judgment. It's true. You walk out the door today, and even for those of you who are here today, you say, I'm not a Christ follower. Let me tell you what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life right now. 
He's trying to stir your heart and he's helping you face the reality that one day you're going to die and you're going to face God. And that the only way that you're ever going to get righteousness, and that is to be in right relationship with God, is through faith. And every day the Holy Spirit is working on wooing you, enlightening you, and drawing you to the Father. And John wants you to know that this work of God is his love, not yours. That's important. Because if you begin your identity with your work, your day, you're more likely than not going to come up short and with the wrong answer. Because there's going to be some days you don't live real well. There's going to be some days you're not terribly obedient. There's going to be other days that you're struggling with certain issues. And if on those days you ask yourself, who am I? You may come to the conclusion that you're an orphan. That you really have no father. And God hasn't really done anything in your life. John says, you're a child of the living God. Why? Because of the lavish love of the Father. And when he comes into your life, it changes the kind of person that you are and you'll become. He talks to them about their view of the law. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. I think non-Christians have two fundamental views towards Christians, if they have any kind of a negative. Number one, they, it's very common for non-Christians to consider Christians uh, hypocrites. And I try to assure them, oh, most assuredly so. Every Christian I know is a bona fide hypocrite. And meaning at times we believe things that we don't live out. At times that we hold on to things that we don't, you know, sustain. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let's take that one away. But one of the things that you'll come to is, is they're going to look at the text of scripture. And one of them in a conversation I had was just so marvelously honest. He said, I think one day I want to become a Christian, but not today. Because today I want to sin and have fun. Okay. And you ask or you think about that, what's his view of God, the law, and scripture? It's restriction, it's lifeless, it's joyless, it's sinless. And in his mind, I can't have fun unless I'm sinning. And so he wants to believe in God and he would love to have fire insurance. And he would love to know that when he dies, he's going to go to heaven. But until this point, he kind of views the scripture as just one long list of don'ts. But something changes when you become a Christian. You don't see sin as a breaking of the law. You see sin as a wounding of your father's heart. Your life begins to shift from a set of laws that we live to a relationship that I have with a father. And I begin to see the scripture, in particular, I'll use the Ten Commandments, not as a list of restrictive do's and don'ts, but as a pathway to life. When I was younger, uh, I read the scripture, and this Bible said, honor your father and your mother so that your days would be long. I wanted to live long. I had no death wish. I didn't want to like out of this place at 16. So the idea of honoring my father was a very huge challenge for me. Honoring my mother, that was easy. She was the most godly person I knew. My father, was a different story. And I began to look into the scriptures. God, you got to have an asterisk in there somewhere. 
you know, in the asterisk is got to say, honor your father and your mother unless they're idiots. And if they are, you're free. If your father is a betrayer and he doesn't keep his word and he's left you, you're out. Not a problem. I looked for it and hunted for it, prayed for it, asked for it. And God said, no. When I first looked at it, I first felt the heaviness of the law. God, are you kidding me? I got to honor this guy? How do you ever do that? What's the purpose of the law? To reveal my inability to keep it so that I might what? Discover grace. What's the real picture or what's the gift of the law? The law is given to us so that we can look up against it and discover I can't fulfill that. And thus, I reach for God's grace. You see, the law became my friend. My law, the law became my friend. Why? Because when I realized, God, I can't do that. There's no way I can honor a guy that did what my dad did. And then the father says, oh, but with my grace, we can do the impossible. You see, when my identity is that I'm a child of God, a process of transformation begins. And it changes the kind of person that you will be that you are and that God longs for you. Your identity, you're a child of God. The expectation of a child of God, John says, and I like the way he speaks, do what's right. He's not going to mince words with you. He's not going to say, I'll give it your best try. No, he says, do what's right. If you know who your father is, then you know how to behave. And he goes down and he says that no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. They don't. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. If you continue in sin and are unrepentant and unmoved and feel no guilt at all, then the scripture is a warning to you. You probably don't know the father. Why? Because when you know who your father is, then you know how to live. And John tells us that Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil, not just categorically, but personally. He tells us in verse 8, He says, he who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the very beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was what? To destroy the devil's work. Destroy, the term, doesn't mean annihilate, doesn't mean eliminate, but it means to reduce the power, to render inoperative or to rob the power of something. So when the devil comes to you, God says, I have a vision. I have a passion to change and transfer the power grid in your life. Prior to being a Christian, the devil had complete reign in your life. He had complete authority. You had one master. It was the devil. It manifested itself in pure selfishness. But the reality is that's what the devil does. 
And when Christ came, it says that he came in there to do what? To destroy that work of the devil, to give you an option, to free you of being a slave of the enemy, and to free you, enabling you to do what? To change. Because Christ came not only to destroy the work of the devil in you, but he came to empower you to live a changed life. Paul or John goes on and he says, In verse 9, no one who has been born of God will continue to sin. Why? Because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning. Why? Well, because he's been born of God. He can't. It's impossible. God came and he came and he planted something in you. And he says he put a seed in you. What is that seed? There's some debate about that. Number of options. One is the seed is the gospel. Another is the seed is the word of God. The third is the one that I probably prefer. And the seed is the the Holy Spirit. And if you were to borrow from Paul's imagery, as he says to the Corinthian church, he said that you are being transformed into ever increasing glory. Why? Because planted in your soul, in your heart is a seed. And God says that seed's going to grow. And as that seed grows, it has influence and it shapes you and it affects your thinking and it changes the way you live. It's a guarantee, by the way. You won't go on sinning. You will discover victory. You will overcome. Why? Because Christ came into your life to empower you and to promise that you will change. There's been more than a few that have come into my office because of this text and said, I've been battling this for years. Might it be that I'm not a child of God? It's a good question. But if we take the language of scripture just cleanly and clearly. If you've confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You are saved. If you believe in him, you will be called John 1.12. A child of the living God. Now comes the issue. Do you define yourself by your behavior or do you find yourself by the finished, glorious, lavish love of God? And if you start there, which is where John starts, then his point is simply this. You will change. You will know what to do. And you will know who to love. Years ago came this little bracelet and people put it around their... their, uh, wristbands and it was the WWJD what would Jesus do Um, I'm not much of a bracelet wearer so I I probably wouldn't put it on but quite honestly I I found it uh, nice it was quaint it just was terribly unhelpful and the reason it was impractical I don't live when Jesus lived Um, I, I go to a lot of weddings but nobody's asking me to turn the water into wine I don't walk everywhere I go, and, and I don't live outside of a home. And, and I think um, Dallas Willard made this statement, and I think it's really helpful. It probably is more helpful if we ask not what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus do if he were me? And I find that question to be marvelously helpful. 
What would Jesus do if he was a truck driver? I'll tell you one of the things. He'd never cook the books and drive 15 hours and register 12. He would never go and manipulate the scales. Jesus would never overpromise. He would do what he says he's going to do. He would show up. He would drive with integrity. He would not drive and text. He would not register less than what he drove. He would not try and push the envelope. Why? Because that's what Jesus never did. He never decided to live by his own law. What would Jesus do if he were a middle manager? Well, he he probably would not treat people as pawns or as a means for his own advancement. If Jesus were a middle manager, my guess is he would know the names of the spouses of those who he managed. He probably would even know their kids' names. Why? Because he would be interested in the people that worked for him. And I can only imagine if Jesus was a middle manager, he would walk around periodically, maybe even daily, if not for sure weekly, and he would probably pause and he would not reduce his relationship to email and text, but he'd actually go and sit at their desk and say, hey, how are you guys doing? How's the family? How are the kids? I know you got a transition coming up. Boy, you got to put your mother-in-law in a home. How about if you take off for the afternoon? I'll fill in for you. You have a big and a very difficult day. How about if I cover for you? How would Jesus treat people if he managed them? I think the vast majority of them, other than Judas, would say it's the best boss I ever had. What would Jesus do if you were a high schooler? Would he go in and have a set of friends and everyone else is off limits? Would he walk in and pick up the the normal uh, language of everyone else and and know who to hate and who's not to be talked to? And and would he walk in and would he have his clique or his gang and, and not associate with other people? Or would Jesus be the kind of person that every class he showed up, he's sitting with somebody different. And he's actually even willing to sit with the people who have been rejected by everyone. What would Jesus do if he were a high schooler? If he was in athletics, would he cheat? I don't think so. If he was a high schooler, Would he slip another friend who said, man, I had a long night. I had to work and I didn't have a chance to study. Can you give me a few of the answers? I mean, I'll cover for you next time. Would Jesus have that conversation? No. You see, when you know who your father is, then you know how to live. Do what's right. And when you know who your father is, You know who to love. The expression of a child of God is, I want you to love people. I don't want you to be like Cain, he says. I don't want you to be self-seeking. He starts in verse 12 and he says, I don't want you to be like Cain. Cain had a brother, Abel. Belonged to the evil one and he murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Well, (laughs) because Abel got in his way. Abel ticked him off. Abel made him jealous. 
And Cain was all about his life, his worship, and his relationship with God. And he wanted God to think well of him, and he couldn't stand his righteous brother, Abel. It's like the person who comes to church. Uh, Sorry, you're sitting in my chair. I normally sit there. Oh, please forgive me. Does this happen? Yeah. It happened one time right here in the church, man. We had an all-out brawl. I mean, it was just like, whoa, neither of you tithe enough to ask for that chair. (laughs) You want to give more? I'll let you sit up here with me. No, that's not what I said. It's what I wanted to say, but it's not what I said. It's the person who comes and is, is asking the question, is the sermon the right length? Is the worship the right tone? Is, did, it the, did the pastor choose the right words? I mean, they're always thinking about what? Me, 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 me. You got to make this church about me. God says, if you're a child of the living God, that's not the way you think. You're not self-seeking, but rather you're self sacrificing this is how we know what love is Christ laid down his life and we ought to do the same for our brothers and sisters what does it look like to be self-sacrificing three things I think come from this text number one you choose to open your eyes he says if you have possessions if we have possessions, if anyone has material possessions, verse 17, and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that individual? It means that you live with your eyes open. When you walk around, you see people. You entertain what their struggle is. I got a text this morning from our pastor, Jim. Jim had a knee operation, I think it was two or three months ago, and it got reinfected. So he's back in the hospital, and they had to open it up again and take out a section. He sent me a text this morning. The guy's fighting. I mean, it's, that infection is real stuff. But you know what his text was this morning? Mark, pray for me. Not for my knee, pray for me. I have never seen people in the hospital more open to the gospel. You're trying to recover. Your one leg is double the other one. Mark, you wouldn't believe what these nurses carry, the burden they carry, the difficulties they're having at home. And I'm amazed at how open and transparent they are and willing to share and for me to pray with them. Pray that God would give me wisdom. Let me tell you what, my friend, that guy has his eyes open. He's not in there telling me how good or bad the nurses are and how good the care is and where did this infection come from? I need somebody to blame. I need a doctor to come in here and own up to what he's that The language is not in him. Mark, you wouldn't believe the weight that these nurses are carrying. Would you pray for them? When you're a son of the living God, You live with your eyes open. Even if you don't like what you see, open them up and listen. And then open your hands. Because the scripture goes on in verse 18 to say, Dear children, let us love not with words or tongue, but with actions in truth. 
My friend Harold Westing, who's been with Jesus for a number of years, used to attend this church back in the 50s and I think early 60s. I met him at Denver uh, at the seminary and he used to always say, and I loved his statement, he goes, Mark, men worship God best with their hands. I think it's true, but I think it's true actually of women also. It's not enough to say, I love you. That's what the scripture says. It's not enough to just use words. I make it my goal to tell my wife every day that I love her. But if that's all I got, that's going to wear thin. And if I somehow think that that's sufficient kind of love, that I I told you what I think and and you need to believe what I say, when the reality is when my life is not congruent with my words, you know which one she's going to believe. And the same thing out there in the world. And that is if we are simply words only. We're a church for the city, but we don't have any dirt on our hands. And we haven't signed up and we aren't good neighbors and we aren't taking the thing of loving our city to Christ then my friends we might want to ask who's our father because if you're a son or a daughter of the living God then you're going to know how to live and you're going to know who to love open your hands and give of yourself for the good of others This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. You have not come to the vision of John unless you've laid your life down for others. Unless you've inconvenienced yourself. Unless you've given of your resources. Unless you've altered your agenda. Unless you've opened your eyes and had your heart broken for people. You haven't loved to the extent that Jesus wants you to if you haven't sacrificed your life for their benefit. If you haven't gone out of your way to make somebody's life better. If you haven't listened to the point that they feel loved. If you haven't sacrificed to the point that you've eased their burden. Because if you know who your father is, you'll know how to love. A number of years ago, a friend of mine, Phil, his wife was, uh, she was entering into the stage of dementia and Alzheimer's. If you've ever worked with a person who's struggled with memory issues, one of the things you'll see is they begin to compensate by a lot of notes. It's the way they keep track. I put clothes in the dryer and um, I turned up the temperature. You can just see that transition where they're beginning to notate the and, and putting that sign in front of them. And one of the things that Phil's wife did is she would write him regular notes. And one of the notes went like this. Dear Phil, today was a sad day for me because I forgot your name. I know you. I just, your name wouldn't come to my mind. I realized as she went on that one of these days, I'm not going to recognize you. 
And you're going to come into the house and I'm going to be scared because I'm going to feel like a, uh, an intruder is coming into my home. And she finished this one day with this statement, Dear Phil, unless Christ takes me home, I will forget who you are. Please don't forget me. So Phil sat down to write her a letter. Dear honey, don't worry about forgetting my name. I've forgotten the children's names as well. (laughs) I've called them the dogs. It's okay. Be assured. When I made a vow to you for better or for worse. It included a season like this. And though you may forget me. Please understand. I will never forget you. And the vow that I've made to you. Why did he say that? Because he knows who he is. He made a vow and it wasn't just to her, it was to his father. And Phil is a a mighty, mighty man of God. Who fulfills his vows and his promises. Who knows how to live because he knows who he is. He knows how to love. Even when his life or his wife won't be able to love him. My friends, when you walk out that door, John's going to tell you, do what's right. Don't give yourself a leeway. Don't give yourself an out. Do what's right. You know what to do. And love the people that God puts in your place. Why? Because if you don't, they might think that you're an orphan. And you're not. You're a child of the living God. Live that way.